0: And good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Dan. Hey,
1: Buzz. How goes it? How's your Tuesday?
0: Well, my Tuesday started off um, not well. I um, am a longtime fan and friend and constituent of Steve Kulik, Mm. um, who represented the first Franklin for, I think, a quarter of a century or so, and who always represented us well, and um, you know I've been I've been the moderator of my town meeting for decades and he never missed one. Wow. I think he represented whatever it was. 17 or 22 towns and he always made every single town meeting for and all of those
1: towns. Yeah, he
0: was he was amazing. Wow. He was tireless. Uh, he worked his way up to being vice chair of way- House Ways and Means and joint uh, Ways and Means. He was um, an effective, caring, smart, well-researched legislator. um, And when he retired, uh, I thought it was a terrible loss, but we're so lucky. Natalie Blay um, uh, succeeded him, and she represents our district with equal zeal and confidence. But it's a real loss to all of us. So I just wanted to open the show by just acknowledging anybody who knew Steve knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, And uh, he was a beloved truly public servant, which is what the headline in both The Recorder and The Daily Gazette says. So that I wanted to open with, and um, I I really, uh, I'm very gratified that we have, um, I think that you, Dan, you have previously spoken to Tiara Fisher, who's the coordinator for the Opioid Task Force, and Rachel Katz, who's the Director of Addiction Services for the Community Health Center of Franklin County. I think you've spoken to both of them.
1: Yeah, uh, we just did an interview that will be coming out shortly on Panorama uh, about this project, so it's really exciting to talk to them again about it. Um, Yeah, there's some great work being done on the ground. Um, and relating to, to the opiate crisis and, and all their structural social issues that we talk about on this airwaves all the time, but here is a project that's trying to deal with that concretely on the ground, so it's exciting.
0: Well, um, I'm anxious to catch up and to learn more about it, and with us on the phone is, um, let me start with you, Rachel Katz, only because you're Director of Addiction Services for the Community Health Center of Franklin County, and I was a lawyer for the Community Health Center of Franklin County, I think for the first five or six years of its inception. So the organization is near and dear to my heart. So good good afternoon, Rachel.
2: Hi, Buzz and Dan. It's so great to be here. I, I really appreciate the invitation to speak with you both.
0: Well, I think it's important that what you folks do, which is uh, so important um, for so many, uh, not just individuals, but communities um, that suffer from the opioid crisis that we've been in for far too long. So why don't you start, I'm going to turn our attention to Tiara, but let's start by t- telling about what the Community Health Center of Franklin County does and tell us about this NIH HEAL initiative I've been reading about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I will start with the Community Health Center of Franklin County. So we are a federally qualified health center located in Greenfield and Orange. So hopefully locations that are familiar to your listeners um, and the really cool thing is that we provide something called office-based addiction treatment. And so what that means is that we can provide treatment for a variety of substance use disorders that is fully embedded in primary care. So we take care of the whole person you know, basically from, from beginning to end, including the management of any chaotic drug use they might have or if they do have sort of a true definition of a substance use disorder. Um, so that's really exciting. And we have some, you know, we've been able to expand our program. So we are actively taking new folks in. We work from a, a harm reduction based model. So if someone is looking for treatment, they can come to us at any stage of their drug use, whether they are ready to quit using drugs or whether they're you know, just wanting to talk about how to reduce their harm. Um, so folks can find us at our, at our website and I can give that out later. Um, but we'll pivot then to the NIH Healing Community Study. So the National Institutes of Health and the National Institutes of Drug Abuse have co-sponsored sort of this nationwide study called the Healing Communities or the Healing Initiative which is looking at community-based decision-making on how best to reduce the amount of opioid overdose deaths. So this study is bringing together a lot of community partners to form this broad-based coalition, and the coalition then decides on the interventions that we want to roll out in our community. So everything is based in our community. Decisions are made with our community members um, and for folks who have sort of the most skin in the game, so to speak.
0: It's so important that it's community-based. I mean, we forget that, uh, you know, the, these people who are suffering from these types of addictions, they are our neighbors. They are our children, and they are, many of them, our future. And it's so important to look at it as a co- is our problem, not their problem. Tiara Fisher, you are the coordinator for the Opioid Task Force. First of all, could you talk to us about the need for an opioid task force and then explain what it does and how it approaches its work?
3: Sure, absolutely. And just to clarify, I am the coordinator on the Healing Community Study Project. Um, Deborah McLaughlin is the coordinator of The Opriate Task Force, and she is our fearless leader.
0: Oh, I gave you a promotion and I didn't even know it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So The Opriate Task Force um, began or originated in 2013, and so our our three founding co-chairs, which is um, Sheriff Donnellan, Register John Merrigan, as well as um, D.A. Sullivan, uh, they came together in 2013, and now uh, 10 years ago about almost, this is when the opioid epidemic was just st- starting to, to be talked about in more mainstream avenues. This is when folks were noticing, whether via family members, coworkers, um, just people in the community who they were seeing experiencing the, both the symptoms and the effects of having um, opioid use disorder and struggling with this mm-hmm. disease. And so our three co-chairs came together back in 2013 and they held an initial meeting to talk about, like, what is this epidemic? How is it affecting our community? Um, And since then, over the past 10 years, led by by them as well as um, community partners that have joined the task force and Deborah McLaughlin, um, who has since been leading as coordinator over the past um, few years, We have grown into having several um, subcommittees as well as several working groups um, that organize, lobby, host events, and make efforts in areas around housing as well as addressing um, access to medication for opioid use disorder as well as supporting um, individuals um, in any way in any capacity possible and making sure that our community members um, have access to educational resources as well as actual monetary and physical resources um, to support themselves as they are navigating through um, substance use or supporting someone um, who is using substances. And the Opioid Task Force also, um, last year, they launched their Connect program, which is an opiate post-response program. Um, So, when individuals call 911 to report someone who has overdosed and police or EMS respond, um, our Connect program then um, sends over recovery coaches as well as individuals that can are connected with DCF and other support services as needed.
0: Um, DCF Department of Children and Families.
3: Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and to help support individuals as they navigate, you know, life post overdosing and surviving, um, and making sure that folks are set up for success, so that way they're not overdosing again. Um,
0: you know, it's it's so interesting, um, T. R. Fisher, when <clears throat> I mean, I'm a bit of an oldie now, and back in the early 70s, I was in San Francisco, and that's when we first started hearing about a lot of overdosing. It was sort of like, you know, a, a sort of quiet and subtle secret that some people overdosed and there were any kind of real numbers to the people who were victimized by overdoses. <clears throat> when I was in San Francisco, it was hate, ashbury it was heroin, it was bad cocaine that was cut with stuff. It was part of a black market for drugs. And now we have this chronic pain uh, situation in the United States where I think 20 or 25% of all adults suffer from pain. And they take these pain medications, which end up being the source uh, so many overdoses, right? It's a different kind of thing because instead of being a black market, it's a white market, right?
3: Yeah, I think it's a bit of a more complex issue. And I know um, Rachel Kaff, She she's our local community mm-hmm. expert, um, one of many, um, but she can speak more to sort of the history of the opioid epidemic and why it's a little bit more multidimensional. I think it involves race as well as who is getting prescriptions, as well as the sort of uh, transition from how we view people who are using drugs or who might need drugs to support pain, um, and over the past 100 years or so, um, how that's led up to where we are now in what we're calling the opioid epidemic. But I think Rachel um, could explain better the history behind that.
0: Please do, Rachel Katz.
3: Yeah, I'm,
2: I'm happy to. So, Um, I think what's really interesting about sort of the narrative around the pain medication epidemic is that there actually was already an epidemic of drug use and overdose long before medications like OxyContin came onto the market. Um, And if you go all the way back in history, you know, to to the early 1900s, drugs like heroin and cocaine were actually legal. They were sold over the counter. They were used for routine medical procedures all the time. And certainly there were folks who became addicted. And what then sort of happened is that in order for them to continue to live their lives in a productive way, they could just continue to buy their drug. The pharmacist would just continue to supply them with it such that they were not going to a black market. What happened in 1916 was the Harrison Act was passed, and that has its base in a lot of historical racism. Um, And what happened when the Harrison Act was passed was that drugs like heroin and cocaine became illegal. And so that's really when you started the black market. Um, And that's when the drug supply became unregulated, more and more dangerous from, from different sources and different supplies. And then if you fast forward all the way into the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, we have a medication called OxyContin come onto the market. You know, myself as a medical professional certainly got sold, you know, the the story about OxyContin not being addictive. Obviously, we now know different. Um, So what happened was a lot of folks got onto OxyContin or OxyCodone for treatment of chronic pain. And then they sort of had the rug pulled out from underneath of them. Um, And what I mean by that is that once we found out that OxyContin was addictive, we took people who were taking high doses of medications who may or may not have developed a substance use disorder related to those medications, and we cut them off or we rapidly titrated their dose down such that they then did develop withdrawal symptoms and become sick. And then they ended up turning to the black market, so to speak, or the street market. And so if you look at the data after the CDC released their 2016 opioid prescribing guidelines, which is what a lot of us based our treatment on moving forward, that's what led to a lot of these prescriptions being reduced or cut down, we actually see a huge increase in overdose rates um, and suicide rates, interestingly enough, as folks were not getting their chronic pain treated appropriately. And so I think the pendulum swung a little bit too far in the other direction, that we actually were not considering the whole person, the whole patient, and that there is a really significant difference between physical dependence on a medication and addiction, which often involves behavior that goes along with chaotic drug use. Um, And the story that I am hearing now most with my patients is not that they had their pain medications cut off from them and therefore started using illicit or street-based drugs, but more that they are not able to get pain medication to treat their pain, and so are using illicit or street-based drugs. And so what we're seeing is that the overdose crisis right now um, is actually mostly involving fentanyl. So there is no heroin anymore. You're lucky if you can find anything involving heroin. It is almost all fentanyl. And fentanyl is 100 times stronger than morphine, 100 times stronger than street-based heroin. And folks are using that, and they don't expect the strength of it. And that is now what is causing the majority of our fatalities.
4: Ouch.
0: Well, therein <laughs> lies the problem.
2: I know, it's, a, it's a sobering history, so to speak, no pun intended. But, um, you know, I think that the narrative around the Sackler family and, and Purdue and OxyContin is true in a lot of ways. But I also think, like Tiara said, it misses a lot of the complexity of the situation. Um, and we didn't really even get into the race-based drug policy that drives um, the war on drugs in this country and, and how much that has actually failed our society and failed our communities um, and has led to increased fatalities amongst people who use
0: drugs. Yikes. There's so much to talk about. Well, we're going to have to take a break. Um but well, when we come back, I want to I hear more about this uh, NIH HEAL initiative and uh, whatever else you think our listeners should be made aware of, um, whether they or a loved one or just to know about these services that you folks are involved in providing that are so critical to our communities. We're going to be back. We're going to talk more with Tiara Fisher and with Rachel Katz right after these messages. Stay with us.
4: This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP.
0: What does the House January 6th Committee referral of
4: criminal charges to the Justice Department mean for Donald Trump, legally and politically? We'll have a fish wrap on that and experts to discuss Trump's precarious future
5: beginning Wednesday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information and the
6: Arts.
7: Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at
5: 9 a.m. Corsella Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small, family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for
7: steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsella Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com.
5: I'm Tony Warden, President and Chief Executive Officer of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season and a safe and healthy new year
7: this is mary ross of the co-op bank wishing all our customers my family and friends a very happy and joyful holiday season this is chelsea and this is maggie from the commercial loan department we want to wish our family friends and customers a very merry christmas and a happy new year hi this is jane
8: wolf senior vice president of residential lending at greenfield cooperative bank I'd like to wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous new year.
7: Hi, this is
6: Missy Tetro Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season. Hi, I'm Dawn. And I'm Erica from the Florence Branch of Northampton Cooperative Bank. We, we would like, like to extend our best wishes to our
7: customers, families, and friends
3: for a happy holiday season and a happy new year.
7: Cheers
5: orthopedic injuries don't just happen to athletes muscle and ligament tears can happen from a golf game tennis match or even shoveling snow i'm dr connor ziegler sports medicine and board certified orthopedic surgeon with new england orthopedic surgeons our surgical team here in western mass is ready to tackle any orthopedic or sports injury from shoulders to elbows wrists hands hips knees ankles and everything in between including physical therapy and regenerative medicine such as orthopedic laser treatment and prp hey pat Who's on the sidelines this week? Wide receiver Devontae Parker is. He sat out Sunday's loss to the Raiders
4: due to a concussion. His return for this Saturday against Cincinnati is questionable. Running back Damian Harris missed his third straight game Sunday and is questionable to return for this week. Cornerback Jalen Mills continues to rehab a groin injury and is day-to-day. And offensive lineman Isaiah Wynn has a foot injury and is questionable for this week.
5: So, if you're looking for the best bona fide care around, visit neortho.com to schedule an appointment. With locations in Springfield, East Longmeadow, and Northampton, our team will get you back in the game.
4: This is The Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 1015 WHMP.
0: You know, on this program, we talk about so many important topics some of them are national in scope some of them are uh regional in scope but some of them are really local and and um the opioid uh crisis for a long time in this area has has decimated family after family and and it's really important to understand uh what you have to understand in order to be able to contribute towards the solution so we're here with tiara fisher And Rachel Katz, I want to start with you, Tiara Fisher of the Opioid Task Force. So um, what should people know and what should people do to be part of the solution?
3: Great. Absolutely. Thank you for asking this question. Well, first of all, everyone should know about Narcan and everyone should be carrying Narcan. Earlier, Rachel talked about fentanyl and how potent this is and how it's been poisoning all of our drug supply for folks that are getting it um, from sources that aren't prescribers or their healthcare providers. And so we want to reduce the the risk of folks who are having an overdose, but also if folks, if you know someone or see someone who's having an overdose, being able to respond to them. So think about if someone has an allergy and they go into anaphylactic shock, right? The first thing you do is you pull their epipen and you administer it. With Narcan, it's the same thing, it's a first aid response if someone is on the floor or on the ground and you believe that they are having an overdose, if you have Narcan handy, you will be able to administer Narcan, call 911 and get them the help they need. And what Narcan does is hopefully it will help folks get back to breathing. And so Rachel can talk a little bit more behind the signs of it. Um, But essentially what Narcan does is it blocks the opioids that are essentially telling the receptors in your brain to stop breathing. And it releases those so that way your brain can then say, okay, it's okay to breathe again. Um, Also, another important consideration is that um, synthetic opiates that are also being mixed in with fentanyl, such as xylazine, can also have, um, which is also very potent and is an animal tranquilizer, um, can also have adverse effects on someone who's having an overdose. So it's also important to administer Narcan and um, rescue breathing if individuals are not waking up. So where can you get Narcan from? Um, Narcan can be uh, picked up without a prescription at any local pharmacy. Um, The Massachusetts Department of Public Health has issued a standard order um, that gives anyone the opportunity to get it over-the-counter at the pharmacy. You will have to pay a copay if you have private insurance. However, if you do have MassHealth, MassHealth will cover 100 percent of the cost. So anyone can go into a pharmacy whether you use drugs or not, whether you have a family member that does, or whether you just want to carry it in case um, for safety. You can go into any pharmacy, pick it up. If you have MassHealth, they'll cover it. If you have private insurance, there might be a copay. But Narcan really needs to get out more within to the community um, because it really is like a first aid kit. And it's, it's really a the, the front lines and the foundation of prevention um, and the easiest way that anyone in the community can help assist with someone having an overdose.
0: And people, if people want to find out more about the Opioid Task Force or any of the information that you disseminate to people, how can they contact you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so firstly, the Opioid Task Force has a website. So if you just search www.opioidtaskforce.org, Um, the first link that pops up on Google will be the Opioid Task Force of um, Franklin County and North Quabbin region. Additionally, if anyone's interested and wants to learn how to administer Narcan, um, in consortium with Tapestry, a local harm reduction agency, the Opioid Task Force hosts monthly virtual Narcan trainings that anyone can access. And you can look at our our schedule or calendar of events for that at the Opioid Task Force um, website. Okay. And you can contact me at tiara.fisher um, at opiataskforce.org.
0: Tiara, T I A R R A dot Fisher, F I S H E R. Thank you, Tiara. Rachel, I, we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to um, broaden the conversation a little bit. There's so many folks that in this country we don't have a single payer system. So we don't have national health insurance. What we do instead is uh, it, uh, people have to be lucky enough to be able to afford health insurance or to afford treatment on their own, or they turn to MassHealth if they qualify and financially able, um, eligible, excuse me. So there's something, federal government has created 330 grants, which it gives to community health centers. Could you tell us in a broader way what the community health center is, what it does, and who can use it?
2: Absolutely. Um, So, as I mentioned before, and as you just mentioned, Buzz, um, the Community Health Center of Franklin County is a federally qualified health center. So, what that means is that we receive federal and state dollars such that we can treat anyone who walks in our door regardless of their insurance status or ability to pay. So, if you don't have insurance or if you have insurance that you can't afford necessarily to pay for visits, um, you are welcome to come into the community health center and we can treat you at a sliding scale or at no cost. We can help work with your insurance, help you figure out better or new insurance, help you get onto MassHealth. Um, and then we also work with various pharmacies for medications that we can either subsidize completely for patients or that we can help them afford um, through our various block grants and the way that we're funded.
0: Got it. And just the breadth of services which people can can get at the Community Health Center of Franklin County?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we run um, you know, full-scale primary care, um, so cradle-to-grave, as I like to say, so newborns all the way through up until the end of folks' life. Um, we also provide full-spectrum dental care. We do have a behavioral health department, and then we collaborate very closely with the Centers for Human Development, so if folks have any ongoing behavioral or mental health needs, then we have an ongoing partnership with them. And obviously, my department is near and dear to my heart. So the office-based addiction treatment program, um, which I mentioned before, is fully, fully embedded into primary care. So for folks who are using drugs and want to stop using drugs or want to cut down on their drug use or move from chaotic drug use to not chaotic drug use, um, you can come and talk to us. And then the last thing that we provide is sexual and reproductive health care. So we do birth control, including IUDs and implants. Um, And we have, you know, we can counsel patients on on any number of their other sort of sexual health or or reproductive
0: needs. Really incredible. Um, Community health centers are always so fantastic, but the one in Franklin County, um, it's just we're so lucky to have you. How do people get, if people want an appointment or if you want to find out if they're financially eligible, I guess they are. So how do they contact you?
2: Yeah, so the best way to get more information is through our website. So it's chcfc.org. You can also just Google the Community Health Center of Franklin County, and folks can call our main office number at 413-325-8500. And if people want to get directly into our office-based addiction treatment program, the phone number is 413-325-8508.
0: We we throw around the term local heroes. You, Tiara Fisher, you, Rachel Katz, and all of your colleagues who do this work, you're local heroes. Um, If anybody knows anyone or if you yourself need the services which were just described by either Tiara from the Opioid Task Force or uh, Rachel from, uh, uh the, uh, addiction services for the community health center in Franklin County. Um, get that Narcan, find out about it. It really is life saving. Our community really needs to get its handle on the opioid issue and the overdose problem. Thank you both for being with us today.
2: Thank you so much. It was our pleasure. Uh, Thank you for having
0: us. My pleasure. We are going to be back. We're going to have a very special playbill with Jackie Walsh because instead of being the interviewer, she's going to be the interviewee. Buckle up, listen to these messages, and come back.
4: This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMD.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Former state representative for the 1st Franklin District, Stephen Kulik, has died. He passed away on Sunday at his home in Worthington after a long illness. He was 72 years old and had spent 25 of those years representing towns in Hampshire and Franklin counties. Prior to being elected to the legislature, he served for many years in municipal government with a special focus on issues to do with energy and the environment. Friends and colleagues remember Kulik as a mild-mannered politician eager to form coalitions who always did his homework to deeply understand the issues. He and his wife Suzanne just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary this summer. A man accused of killing a Holyoke teenager back in the summer has pleaded not guilty to murder and gun charges. 21-year-old Elijah Melendez of Holyoke was arraigned at Hampton Superior Court in Springfield Monday. Melendez is accused of killing 18-year-old Elis Viscarando. Viscarando's body was found in the Connecticut River in Chicopee on July 3rd with a gunshot wound. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner will be hosting the mayor's annual holiday food drive for Rachel's Table. The event will be held tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Johnson Community Center. This will be the first public event for Officer Frankie, Greenfield Police Department's comfort dog, who will be assisting the mayor at the food drive. Rachel's Table began collecting donations for the food drive in November and will continue through Christmas to benefit residents of Franklin County.
1: For the rest of today, mostly sunny, highs 34 to 38. Tonight, mostly clear and cold, overnight lows 14 to 20. And the out for Wednesday, sun and clouds, highs in the mid and upper 30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
6: Hey, it's Jason with the Weather Channel and SnowCountry.com. One of the best savings rates in America is another reason banking with Capital One is the easiest decision. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One NA member FDIC. That big snowstorm continues to have a big effect at the mountains. New trails have been opening as fast as grooming crews can get to them. Even natural runs and glades are popping up. And snow guns are still blasted away every night. chimney Peak jumping up to two dozen trails. Action till 10 p.m. every night. Ski Butter, not half dozen for you. Catamount up to eight trails. A seven at Wachusett with action till 7 p.m. Stratton made a huge jump this weekend. They jumped up to near 80 trails now. Killington almost 100. They get another couple of fresh in. 30 inches the last seven days there. Waterville Valley, 40-plus runs now, about two dozen at Bretton Woods. This report brought to you by Smuggler's Notch for where family funds guaranteed, visit Smuggs.com. And check out more at snowcatcher.com.
5: I'm Jason Dean. Christmas Day, your aunt shows up with that kooky boyfriend, and now you're not going to have enough mashed potatoes. Oh, how he loves his mashed potatoes. And your brother's new diet, he announces, includes Cool Whip. Between you and me, what kind of diet is that? And man, yesterday when the stores were insane, you forgot to get the butter. Butter! Good thing Cooper's Corner Market is open in Florence, Christmas Day until 1 p.m. Good thing State Street Fruit Store in Northampton is also open until 1. They're sister stores. Would you expect less from sister's? Whatever's left on your menu list Christmas morning, not to worry. It's all at Cooper's and State Street. Milk, check. Butter, check. Rolls, check. Cranberry sauce goes without saying. And get this, you can even get a roasting pan. I'm not kidding soda and ice onions and celery cooper's and state street open until one christmas day and nine christmas eve florence and northampton cooper's and state street florence and northampton
4: this is the afternoon buzz with buzz eisenberg 1015 whmp
0: Welcome back and welcome aboard for those who are just joining us. If you're regular listeners to this show, you know that every Tuesday at 4.30 we are treated to Playbill by Jackie Walsh. Jackie first surveys what's available in the region. She goes as far as, as South Berkshire County to um, all through Hampden, Hampshire, Franklin County, even Worcester on occasion, telling us what's available even during the pandemic. Uh, highlighting things that were available for us to pay attention to. Well, um, which leads me to today. It's near the end of the year, and I want to find out, Jackie Walsh, how the heck did you get into this? So (laughs) um, my first question is, when did you first start falling in love with theater?
8: (laughs) Um, Probably I fell in love in the 70s. I'm aging myself. Because my mom was part of a theater club and sometimes some, you know, Mrs. Howard couldn't go. And so I get to go with my mom. And I saw Pippin and I saw Elephant Man and I saw Dracula. So really loved it then. But I was pretty shy in high school. So I did dance chorus and regular chorus. But the rule for me was I cannot say a line on stage. It was too scary.
0: Wow. So
8: I was in, well into my 40s before I got back into it. And um, I had seen my my daughter's fourth grade teacher from Buckland Shelburne, in Ashfield, in Song of Bernadette. I think she played Bernadette's mother, and it was just a great play. And I just thought, man, if she can do that, maybe I could do that. So, um, and then there was a um, countywide read, and we all read Willa Cather's My Antonia. So I read it with a book group in, at Greenfield Library.
0: Were you reading <laughs> plays at this time? Were you... Not really. Not, not anymore, really? Okay. any
8: more than... Yeah, occasionally Shakespeare. Um, so there, someone decided to do the play. And so I had just read it with my book group. I knew the story really well. I knew the characters. So I'm like, maybe I could do that. I got someone else in my book group to come, and very few people tried out. So I got two really good roles right away. And so... That was the beginning, and it was a horrible play. It was like three and a half hours long <laughs> and not that well acted or produced.
1: I but, see uh, it Dan, was is, I got Dan is jumping at the microphone. So, so I wanted to hear this. You, you said that you, you did a little bit of theater in high school, Yeah. but then you only went back in your mid-40s, you, you said. So there was yeah. a gap there. Yeah. So here's a question for you. Sure. How, what event got you back into theater when you were already sort uh-huh. of in your mid forty. Was there an event or did it just I pop back into it was your head?
8: Seeing that play in Ashfield. I don't think I'd thought about it before the, then. The
1: song of Bernadette is there's religiosity
0: behind it. It's like Fatima. It's like yes. seeing a, a vision of, of the, the Mary. Yeah. Mary, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
8: Yeah. I mean it wasn't the plot that got me. I didn't want to do only religious plays or anything like that, but um, it was well put together. Ashfield this guy William Spademan, came out to Ashfield and Ashfield started community directing. Theater. Yeah, started directing Wonderful plays. Wonderful sets, and they were a great place. Yeah. Never musicals, just straight plays. Some serious plays, lots of comedies. But um, by way of was...
0: disclosure, Jackie Walsh Dan, got mm. my wife Marcin, who is she's an artist and she's also skillful with the needle and thread. She became the costumer for yeah, I think five of Ashfield's at community least. Theater. Wow.
8: Yeah. Wow. So and you know I realize everything I did in high school. I was. I have three older siblings. Mm-hmm. I did. I ran track. My sister ran track. I did drill team. I used to twirl the guns and march in parades. My older sister did that, and my brother did West Side Story. He was the cop. So mm-hmm. I was Sergeant just brother. following so in my older footsteps. brother's footsteps. Yeah, yeah, Sergeant Krupke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I did that first play, and I just. Uh, I kind of couldn't stop. I was heartbroken when it ended. And so I just started either auditioning or volunteering to do backstage stuff like three, four, five times a year starting in like 2000. And what were you
1: doing in the backstage? <laughs> I, do you want to so tell
8: us? I did um, probably props first, but I quickly... Actually, the second play I did was The Last High Queen of Ireland with Linda McInerney in Old Deerfield. And it had the word... Ireland, and so I was like, "Oh, I can do that." And she needed a stage manager, so I came in and was probably really horrible. She had um Stephanie Carlson, who, as I've said before, I think is one of the two best actresses in the area um, as the lead. And I kept like oh, stopping her and making her, you know, because one word was wrong in the sentence. You know, <laughs> I was over the top as a stage manager, but I learned, you know, you have to balance it. What what needs correcting? what doesn't. I I, I don't know
0: how to articulate this question other than to just articulate the question, which is, what is it about theater slash acting slash um, uh, performing arts that moves you? So you obviously just look at your face when you describe it, you love it. Mm -hmm. What makes you love it?
8: Yeah, so I think it's... um Well, there's the escapism part. If you do a play, if you're rehearsing three times a week, when you're at rehearsal, at least I forget everything else going on. I could have been in a bad car crash, and my car could still be on the side of the road. I would not think about it once, you know. Um, I could have surgery coming up. Whatever, you forget about day-to-day life. And I find there aren't many things in my life that allow me to do that. So that's part of it. You know, we all have stresses. It's a way to get away from all that. But I think also, like, sharing a piece of literature, a story with other people. You know, I sort of think of Harry Potter, how, like, the entire country shared. As each book came out, we all read them, and we all knew the story. It was so cool to, like, just all dip in at the same time into a piece of literature, and that's what... um, Doing plays is you all, you know, every line and uh, you're all as a group discovering new things like lines that were funny that you never considered were funny or different parts of relationships and that part is cool too. But it's also meeting a lot of people and hanging out with them for like three or four months. People you wouldn't normally meet. Like I did a play, I did um, the... I did a play with um, GCC this spring, and so I got to hang out with a bunch of 19- to 21-year-olds. There were a couple older people, but and they treated me like a 19-year-old, which doesn't happen very often.
1: I want to know this uh, about you, Jackie. Is there a genre within theater that mm. you prefer to go to and sit there and just be in trans by? So it's like, is it historical theater, or is it more... Fantasy theater? I I don't know if I'm asking the right question, but I'm curious to know, is there one that you just absolutely love going to and and why?
8: Yeah, I guess like the classics. I'm not a huge fan of musicals, although I love some. Like Mm. I love Cabaret. Mm -hmm. But just a good story about family. Um, I have to admit newer plays where there's a huge focus on technology, like people are texting throughout the play. Mm. They don't really resonate. With me. <laughs> Wait, that's
1: Give
8: part of me, the you play. you can't take it with you over the, that. The
1: texting but, is part of the play. Yeah. Okay.
8: Yeah. Although I did see a play this summer where it was two, uh, the the romantic pair was um, two people in wheelchairs. That was in in Pittsfield, and they communicated totally with devices. You know, and yeah. You would hear the robotic voice saying, but that was really interesting. What and. and and but. so I had just quick
1: follow-up. Okay, you're going to a theater, you, you're there, you're, you're sitting down, you're waiting for it to begin. Mm-hmm. Do you, like, admire the space that you're in? Can you talk to me a little bit about that, the actual seating, the venue? I want to hear about that. Go ahead, Buzz. I don't know what. It
6: yeah. Tell no, me it's a little funny bit we about
1: talked that. too
8: much about venue a couple a couple shows back. I was like venue, venue, venue. But um oh my god, there's such gorgeous theater, the yeah. Colonial out in Pittsfield, the Academy of Music there, are even the Shea, yeah. Gorgeous spaces and just like sitting there all anticipating, you know, this this thing and everyone's that most people there so Love it adds theater.
1: it adds some value to going to the play. Like you're yeah. you're admiring the play. You're yeah. there for the play, but the venue right. contributes right. to that.
8: Like if I, like, I don't really go, Buzz. If I, I had could to ask. take a don't tour, know. if I could do a tour of yeah. Broadway theaters, I would be in mm. seventh heaven because there's so much history mm. and some of them are beautiful. The one where the Lion King is is mm-hmm. a bit of it's a, unbelievable. a box. Yeah, know? I think. Yes, I think I've that been there. one is. Oh, okay. And I saw. There's the Lion one that's King like there. a. The present yeah. from our
0: daughter. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
8: Well, okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're going to be back with Jackie Walsh. I, I really want to talk about musical theater, I, which I love. Um, mm-hmm. And and I just want to. I, I, anybody who is passionate about anything is worth talking to, but theater is really interesting. We're going to be back and talk with Jackie Walsh more about theater for her Playbill segment this week.
4: This is the afternoon buzz with Buzz Eisenberg 1015 WHMP. What's happening here in the valley? We're talking about it.
7: We have a very unique
2: and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know elicit fear and power and control uh, by white
7: supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015,
4: 1400 and 1240. We are the valley. We are WHMP.
7: Socks are good. One of those gifts you can't help but say, oh, thanks. But alpaca socks, you can't help but say, oh, wow. Have you ever worn alpaca socks? Go to the Atlas Farm Store and get a pair for yourself and a pair for someone else. Someone who's on their feet a lot, who's outside a lot, whose feet are always cold. The Atlas Farm Store. It's a gift shop with fortuitous finds like local art tattoos, temporary tattoos made with vegetable dye, and Cushy Alpaca Socks.
4: It's the most wonderful time of year, but bills that come due afterward can put a lot of stress on your family's budget. Cambridge's budget counseling is free, so if you need help paying down your debt, call 1-800-CAMBRIDGE. The holidays are here, but is inflation making you feel like the Grinch? Call Cambridge to get free budget counseling so you can start 2023 with a plan to pay down your credit card debt. Call
5: 1-800-CAMBRIDGE. com.
9: With COVID-19 cases rising again, the U.S. Postal Service is resuming free delivery of COVID-19 tests to Americans who request them. Residential households can order one set of four free at-home tests from USPS.com. The free tests are limited to one order per household. Food prices remain stubbornly high, but a new study pinpoints where the best prices are. Grocery expert Kristen Wirt says Walmart and Aldi tend to have very competitive pricing within pennies of each other. She says Kroger is more expensive, but its sale prices can be bargains. General Motors has announced a major recall involving more than 740,000 vehicles that were subject to a previous recall. Late model Cadillacs, Buicks, Chevys, and GMC vehicles may still have a problem with daytime running lights that don't go off when the headlights come on. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com.
4: This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP.
0: And this week's Playbill with Jackie Walsh is... With Jackie Walsh. So, (laughs) Jackie, in in terms of, I mean, you and I have talked before. You've had guests on. What is it about musical theater that turns you on so much?
8: Mm. Well, I think part of it is people have skills that I don't have. I've been in a couple musicals and, um, you know, learning the songs. The songs are amazing. Um, And there's a lot of good music in musical theater. Theater, but there's a lot of talent around here, and there's people with amazing voices, and it's just great to watch them and see it all come together, sometimes with live bands, and it's just incredible. And um, people have real loyalty towards certain musicals and will come out in droves, you know, to see Oliver or Cabaret or, um, you know, a Gilbert and Sullivan. So I think I must have a huge,
0: corny part to my (laughs) persona because, you know, when when people are falling in love on stage and then they one of them looks into the eyes of the other and sings their love out to them yeah it moves me it's like some people can say it's sappy and corny but i don't know i just love musical theater for that reason they sing their messages out it's great yeah
8: yeah yeah and then there's this trend now in having the songs not sort of drive forward the story but sort of just be something they're singing i've seen a couple plays recently where it just was oh, sort really? of is that the you know, there's a street musician who's a character and then suddenly he's playing a song on the street that has nothing to do with the plot. Wow. And I it's 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 in some ways more natural, you know, it's like know, what I would know. happen in real life. I like Most it people when it illuminates the story. I right. like it
0: when it's one day more, another day, another destiny, right? Uh-huh. And you sort yeah. of the the song to yeah. you about
8: yeah, yeah.
1: what's going on. So Jackie does well, yeah. Dan I I want to know this. So you uh, have done plays before. Uh What happens if a person's on stage and forgets their line and has to improvise? Like, w- you as a stage manager, what would you do to help them? Like, w- Or what What are some of the funny stories yeah, that you have? That's never happened. Anymore. I'm sure <laughs>
8: it's the never theater. happened. <laughs> <laughs> I throw tomatoes. <laughs> well, the key is you rehearse, you rehearse, you rehearse, you rehearse, you rehearse, and then it doesn't happen But much. there's so many different but lines. Yeah, I mean, yeah, is I is I mean everybody's people memories? have 300 lines, and that's hard. Right. But they have to, like, just find a way back, and sometimes... Whoever else is on stage will, you know, if someone's supposed to say, Well, I'm heading out to the store now, and they just sit there, you say, Aren't you supposed to be heading out to the store right now? <laughs> yes, I am. Um, So you can help each other. But it's not like someone's, you know, in movies, you have like the prompter person sort of in the orchestra pit Mm -hmm. and they're like whispering the line. I've never seen that happen. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of you find your way and you hope that you don't end up skipping like three pages of the Uh script, which is really bad. Because then you're confusing.
1: You're going to confuse the audience, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're bouncing around.
8: And some plays are repetitive. And so you have similar ideas or sentences or expressions at different parts of the play. And so it's easy um, if you're saying a particular line that shows up three times to suddenly uh, think you're in the third part when you're really in the first part. So that is a Pitfall.
1: So, Jackie, tell me, what's the difference between a stage manager and a director?
8: Uh-huh. So, the director takes the play and envisions what it's going to look like on stage. They come up with the blocking, which is where people stand, how they move. They think about character with the actors. They determine, you know, is this line like. Lighting? <laughs> yeah. And they work with the lighting people, the props. They They figure out the whole play, what it's going to look like. And, you know, depending on the director, you might give your your actor's a lot of wiggle room to figure out who they are, or maybe you've, you're you someone who wants to say, okay, at this point you bend your arm, you know, very controlling. That doesn't happen very often. Whereas the stage manager is kind of like the director's sidekick. Like mm. they help they help in rehearsals. It's things as simple as someone's missing. You call them at home. Um, they also write down all the blocking because the director – can forget it or can change it like 50 times. So you mm-hmm. want to be able to say, last time they were supposed to exit stage left, not stage right. So um, yeah, and then when the show runs, in theory, the show sort of becomes the stage manager show. The director doesn't even need to be there and uh, the stage manager, well, is getting everyone on stage, but uh, just make sure everything goes as seamlessly as possible. In, in the mm.
0: minute and a half that we have left, Jackie Wall, mm. um, local theater, we have local people, and, and I've heard people like be critical about people overacting or not being... I find the acting is really extraordinary mm-hmm. around here recently. Yeah. Do you What about you?
8: Yeah, I think so. I had not seen a lot of theater in the Berkshires till recently. Um, but sometimes I see a show in the Berkshires and, you know, I saw Fiddler on the Roof there years ago and we had just done out here I'm like, wow, we did just as good a show. But no, just generally people put a lot of time into it. There's really good actors, there's really good directors. Um, And some companies have the resources to have beautiful costumes and sets. And, um, you know, others it's minimalist, but the play may be really good. So, you know, there's the five colleges. We have a lot of theater graduates who move into community theater. Um, No, I think the quality is pretty good. And the selection of plays is incredible. I mean, you've heard when I describe each week Mm -hmm. what's coming up. It's such an incredible variety of experiences in these plays, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think so. we're really lucky in this region. There, there's really good theater around, and there's, there's some really good performers around here. And and so, um, you know, finally, do you have, are you involved in anything as an actor or as a stage manager uh-huh. right now?
8: Well, I just finished stage managing the Celtification of Emily Dickinson, which was wonderful, mm-hmm. and we're in the middle of plans to go to Ireland in September and do it in churches several different venues and figuring out what parts of the country we want to go to the Tipperary, i'm rooting for because i have family there but probably dublin and maybe um northern incredible and then the celtification
0: in ireland i love it <laughs> jackie walsh thank you so much for today and for constantly making us aware of what's happening in the valley theatrically this
8: was fun thank you
0: it was fun indeed. Everybody else, have a really great night, and we'll be back with you tomorrow. This,
4: this is, is The Afternoon thing. Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 1015 WHMP.
8: The love would never die.
5: Massachusetts now requires you to recycle fluorescent and other mercury-containing bulbs. A tiny amount of mercury is an essential element in energy efficient lighting. But when you throw these bulbs in the trash, they can break and release mercury into the environment. Do your Live part to keep mercury out of and the environment.
4: WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield, Northampton Radio Group Station. It's